Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 119, and today's guest is Gail Goodman, co-founder and chief product officer at Pepper Lane. Gail is a legend in the Boston tech scene. As CEO of Constant Contact, she took the company from its earliest days to a successful IPO and later an acquisition by Endurance International Group for over $1 billion. Constant Contact was a groundbreaking company that was going against the grain in terms of building a successful SaaS business while working with small to medium-sized businesses. This was unheard of back then, and it is truly an inspirational story that all entrepreneurs should listen to. Gail is now working with an amazing team to hopefully build another pillar tech company that is unlocking a massive market opportunity. Pepper Lane is on a mission to help mothers build successful businesses and become entrepreneurs on their own terms. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like a walk through Gail's career and the different roles she held before Constant Contact, a deep dive into the story of Constant Contact and how they overcame the odds to build one of the most successful tech companies in the Boston area, the spiderweb effect that Constant Contact has made to the Boston tech ecosystem with several CEOs, founders, and executives who are building companies, all the details on Pepper Lane and why she is incredibly excited about the mission behind this company, why she is the company's chief product officer versus CEO, advice on how to land a seat on the board of directors at a company, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. If you are listening to this podcast, then it is highly likely that you are interested in the entrepreneurial journey and all the lessons learned around building companies. So make sure you don't miss future episodes by subscribing to the VentureFizz podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or SoundCloud. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Gail. Gail, thanks so much for joining us. I'm really excited to be here. I am so excited to talk to you because I saw the announcement recently about you joining Pepper Lane, which we're going to talk a lot about that company. But um, you know, one of the things that I think is really amazing, and again, we're going to talk about your background. We're going to talk about constant contact. We have so much to talk about. Sure. But um, what I think is amazing is how many people have gone off from constant contact and really have had just amazing, successful careers. Um, you know, Eric Rose was on the podcast. Chris Lister is on the podcast and there's, you know, there's a whole spider web of uh, successful alumni out there. So like, how, do, how does it feel to build a company that has spawned off so much success outside of Constant Contact? I mean, I'm amazingly proud of the team we built at Constant Contact, the culture we built at Constant Contact. And people have said to me, Gail, maybe your legacy is actually just going to be the leaders that you built. And we built an incredible number of leaders. I think we're at six or seven CEOs, maybe more, and counting. That is awesome. And, that, and that's what, you know, Boston needs more of that, right? Creating future leaders. And then those people create future leaders. And it's just a whole snowball effect of just, you know, a very rich and deep ecosystem, which, you know, I, I think, you know, it's come a long way, especially if we look back to, uh, you know, the Web 1.0 era to where Boston is today. I mean, I continue to believe that Boston has an extraordinary talent pool um, and a naturally refreshing talent pool given our educational institutions. Um, I also think we have a talent pool that is more mission-driven, more loyal. Like, I think this is actually Boston, one of Boston's competitive advantages. Yeah, yeah, and then there's the, the hard tech element too with you know, the engine and the things that they're funding are just like, you know, Life sciences, material sciences, we are just, um, we are a, uh, a, a, legit, a legit tech hub, 
but I think with a little more um, loyalty and depth. Yeah. Well, let's rewind the clock. So going back to you as a, as a child, like where'd you grow up? What were you like as a child? All the way to then. So long <laughs> ago. Uh, I grew up in Stanford, Connecticut. Hmm. Uh, I think uh, really childhood, I would be described as a bookworm. I, I have been and continue to be an avid reader. Uh, what else? I did a lot of performing arts. Uh, as a high schooler, I was in a mime troupe. No way. How's that for a little trivia? That is a fun fact about Gail Goodman. Okay. So can you still pull out the mime? Uh, anyone who's worked with me will tell you that me not talking is just impossible now. <laughs> Very, very cool. And then you went to uh, school at Penn. Undergrad at Penn. My big trivia from Penn is that uh, my senior year at Penn, I was the, um, one of the co-leaders of Spring Fling, which is the giant spring party. Uh, for a long time, it was the biggest budget I had ever managed and the biggest team I had ever managed. Uh, and I almost didn't finish school because my senior year, I basically didn't go to class. I just ran Spring Fling. <laughs> they had this like panic moment after fling where I was like, I've got to like catch up and graduate. <laughs> well, hopefully spring fling, fling was a, a massive success. It was quite fun. The B-52s headlined our spring fling. What? You had the B-52s there? We, we did. It was the Rock Lobster era. Just giving you all sorts of little trivia. I know. You've got lots of fun facts. This is what I love about this podcast. I get to learn so much about people that you're like, who knew? Okay. So, so what did you do coming out of college? So after uh, undergrad, I went to IBM in Poughkeepsie, New York, mm -hmm. where I did mainframe IO subsystem design. Uh, I was on the 3090 design team, just to show you how old I was. I started my career, my computer career on mainframes. Mm -hmm. So I've gotten to watch the whole cycle from, you know, mainframe to mid-range to client server to everything's on a phone. Mm-hmm. And then you went back to school to get your MBA at Dartmouth? Yeah, the tech school at Dartmouth. And then that's when I came to Boston. It was right out of Dartmouth. Uh, did uh, three years at Bain doing management consulting. I call that my MBA finishing school. And then, um, which gave me a lot of breath and some really great grounding in strategy uh, and a lot of confidence in uh, presenting and being a speaker. Uh, but then went into software. Again, mainframe software uh, with, uh, remember McCormick and Dodge that became Bradstreet software. Mm -hmm. uh, got to work with the great John Landry, some of the legends of the Boston uh, tech community. Uh, so I started there and then I went into a, what I call the progressively smaller software companies. So I think when I joined Dun & Bradstreet software, you know, I, I can't remember, there were thousands of employees and then I went from there to Progress Software, and then um, from there to uh, Open Market. Remember Open Market, the early? So here's a, I mean, I mean, Open Market basically created the ability for e-commerce on the web, correct? Is that a true statement? Yeah. 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 So another statement that it's just like, you know, Boston doesn't get credit for something like that. Oh, or like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's just an amazing, amazing product. And it's a very successful company. You look at all the people that went off from open market that have done amazing things too. Yeah, so that spawned at least, I think, a dozen, uh, a dozen CEOs as well. So we've had a number of these kind of, I call them anchor companies that spawn 
that next set of entrepreneurs. So I was one of the open market next set of entrepreneurs. And were you in these um, mainly like product management? Was it marketing? And then you kind of moved into more of a GM role, right? Yeah. So I started, you know, in strategy and biz dev because that was the natural transition out of Bain. Uh, but then came up through product management. I'm a product person at heart, kind of from the days at IBM, where it was always about, let me understand what the customer really needs and what are we doing for the customer? Where's our value delivery? So product management to running all of product management to running all of marketing, which was progress, to a GM, which was open market, to CEO. Now, coming out of open market, was it what you you knew you wanted to be CEO of a company and that was what led you down the path of meeting Randy and at the time they were called roving software. Roving software. Yeah, so I did actually want to be a CEO. So I was like, I'm ready. Kind of fake, it was a bit of a fake it till you make it, but no guts, no glory, right? Might as well go for it. Um, and I began looking for uh, ideas, am I going to start something, and companies that might need a CEO. And one of the VCs I was networking with introduced me to Randy Parker, who uh, was just in the process of finishing uh, his first angel uh, bridge, angel loan bridge into his A. Um, and the angels who had funded him said, great idea, you really need to find you know, a business partner to be your CEO. And so they were helping him uh, recruit a CEO. And the rest, as they say, is uh, history. And was it the, the company focused on email marketing even then with, with, when you know, Randy yep. started it? Yeah. Yep. They had a very different uh, go-to-market strategy. So originally, and it makes sense now, um, they were going to integrate with the commerce engines and be the follow-up to e-commerce. So you bought this, maybe you'll like this or, you know, this product you bought before, we now have more in stock. So we were going to use the purchase history as the main driver of the emails. And so I was a natural fit coming right out of e-com. Which is a very current product of what like, yes. is all these email providers now doing exactly that. Well, yeah, in, a, in a much more advanced generation. Uh, and unlike now, where there's a very nice concentrated market of e-commerce leaders like Shopify, um, which I'm on the board of, uh, so <laughs> must, must put disclaimer, I am on disclaimer. the board. <laughs> <laughs> um, at the time, we were integrating with Open Market and Intershop and these other vendors, but as we were trying to follow their coattails, they were unraveling because their business models hadn't matured enough. So eventually, one of the, one of the two big pivots at uh, Roving Software, which became Constant Contact, was the pivot off of commerce. Uh, if I'd been strategically smart enough, I would have pivoted back to commerce uh, 15 years later, but we were kind of off on a different track by then. Yeah. Now, I think uh, this memory is planted in my head. So I, I think it's accurate. <laughs> so I remember I went to an MIT Enterprise Forum event and Roving Software was actually there. I think, I think you guys pitched or something like that or. Yeah, we were one of the business cases that, uh, yeah, I was there. I was on the stage. Yeah, I remember that. Okay, yeah. So I saw I, it in early days yeah. where 
I was just starting my recruiting firm and I was out there hustling, just trying to meet as many people as I could. So uh, totally, totally remember, remember roving pitching. But so um, how did you get started with the company? Because you were in an era that was not known as SaaS yet. And you were you know, selling a product that was um, freemium to SMBs. These are all common terms that people are like, oh, of course, so obvious. But back then, people were like running scared the other way. Like, you're building what? At what price point? That's impossible. Oh, we had like multiple things venture capitalists hated. <laughs> so they hated the small dollars. They hated the SMB. And at the beginning, we were going entirely through indirect channels. So they just kind of hated everything about the idea. And we were told multiple times, you can never, you will never get this to scale at $30 a month. You just, you can't make a business. You can't make uh, the customer acquisition cost work. Although that isn't even really the words they use because CAC to LTV wasn't terminology yet. And the only SaaS models out there really were, you know, was Salesforce. And so we were constantly being compared to them in terms of the average selling price, which was like, Totally different. Um, but Randy's passion had been small business, still is small business. My passion was small business. One of the last things I was working on at Open Market was an e-commerce platform for SMBs. Um, so we both passionately felt like this market, the internet was going to change the way a small business could go to market in a dramatic way. For the first time, they could look like a big business and operate on an even playing field. Browser to browser, other than brand value, you could be on an even playing field. Mm -hmm. And our very first tagline was big E marketing for small E business. Right? Big E marketing. I love that. <laughs> um, you know, and we used that. Remember the, the internet? Um, cartoon that said, you know, on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog. There's a dog at a keyboard. Mm -hmm, ours mm -hmm. said on the internet, nobody knows you're a small business. Uh -huh. The whole thing was look like a big business on the internet. And so we were, I think relentlessly VCs were like, go up market, go up market. You know, they would um, give us this blinding insight that it was easier to get one customer at a thousand dollars than it was to get, you know, 10 customers at $100. Blinding insight. And we'd say, yes, but that's not what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you go down the path of actually starting to get traction with customers and having people sign up? Yeah, well, it started the way most people start, which is brute forcing through friends and family. And we used to, we used to talk about that trains, planes, and automobiles. Everybody we sat next to <laughs> on a train or a plane became our next customer. And in fact, you know, one of the things we realized was that if we had 15 minutes to tell the story, we could convert somebody. And our challenge was really figuring out how to get that shorter and shorter and shorter until they could fit in a Google AdWord chiclet, right? <laughs> and so it became a lot about honing the message. So it started with um, people we knew. Um, in addition to Randy Parker, the early team included uh, Alex Stern. I don't know if you've ever run into him. Uh, another uh, Boston icon who was the most incredible connector I have ever met. So I think like the first hundred customers were just friends of Alec. Like he just brute forced it. 
But then we started to see what worked and what didn't work. And we began to create, you know, what we later started to call and everyone now calls a funnel where how do we reach people? How do we get them to try? As you said, it was freemium, it was a free trial. And then what is the trial process and how do we get folks to truly engage in the trial? Because we learned very early on that email marketing really worked for this audience. So good news number one, if they use it, they get value. So all we need to do during trial is get them to use it. Well, that's a big all, by the way. Uh, all we need to do is get them to do something they've never done in a technology they're uncomfortable with, like all by themselves. That's a big, all you got to do is get them to use the product. And we began attacking that really from first product ease of use and usability. Not, you know, so much of it was about taking unnecessary steps out so we could get quick to value and quick to wow. Those were two big themes. How do we get them to the first outcome as quickly as possible? And then we did something very counterintuitive. In a frictionless SaaS funnel, we put humans. And that was probably the turning point in our movement from, you know, we were not doing terrible on free conversion. I think it was like three or 4% without humans. And we were easing it up through ease of use. I think we'd gotten to about 8%. But then when we got humans into the mix, and humans involved like someone calling you during trial and saying, hey, I'm your coach. I'm here to help you figure out how to use email marketing. So, so someone would sign up and then what would it be like? A, you'd see if they start using it. If they don't, it would be like a trigger of a, a week into their trial to have someone call. So I think we started with a couple of days and then we ended up with two days and then we ended up one day and then we ended up four hours after you sign up. You sign up in the morning, you get a call in the afternoon. You sign up in the afternoon, you get a call the next morning. We tried like while you were still on during your first session and it, it was too creepy. Yeah, too creepy. Like, wait a second, I just signed up for this thing you called me. It went over the creepy line. <laughs> um, but also with that four hours, we could actually figure out how engaged you were. Because one of the other lessons we learned was that um, the highest level of engagement is in the first session. It just makes perfect sense. And even think about your behavior with a mobile app. You download it, you open it up, you are full of, like, ooh, let me see what this does. If it fails to engage you, the odds that you will ever open that mobile app again are extremely low. So we started to learn again and again that the first session was our, our moment of truth. We get engagement on that first session or the, uh, you know, there wasn't zero chance of re-engaging, but it was much lower. Mm -hmm. So we would drive, we got more and more prescriptive about what we were telling our prospect to do during that first session. They could always leave the prescriptive path and explore on their own. But we were unambiguous about what you should do in that first session um, so that we could get more and more and more engagement. And the further they got in that session, it really did inform what that first call from your, uh, from your marketing coach would be. Oh, and the other thing that you did that was counterintuitive back then was the way you set up your pricing model. So it wasn't based on uh, how many emails you sent out, which is what people would assume, how you're going to price it. Okay, I'm going to send out 1,000, 10,000, whatever. You priced it on email list size, which that wasn't what people did back then. 
It wasn't what the, you know, there really was no SMB market. It wasn't what the enterprise people were doing, but it became really clear to us that what was really important to our SMB customers was predictable cost. They didn't know how often they were going to use it because they had never done email marketing before, but they kind of knew how big their contact list was, particularly because we had big buckets. It was like zero to 500, 500 to 2,500. I've just described 80% of our customers. So they at least knew, I don't, I don't have more than a couple thousand. They knew where they were going to be. And as it turned out, um, it was a good alignment of um, incentive structures because you don't want to create an incentive. Like, I didn't want them stopping before they hit send thinking, can I afford this? The more they used, the more value they got, the more value they got, the more they stayed, the higher our retention. Why create a disincentive to usage? And of course, for our cost structure, the sending of an email was de minimis, right? What was costing us was acquiring customers and building the software. The actual sending was fractions of fractions of fractions of a penny. Did you get um, a, a bit of a, like a viral coefficient when, like whenever I opened up a constant contact email, I always saw the logo at the bottom. And I would think people would click on that and be like, oh, I can have this too. Subtle, huh? <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was clearly a piece of the strategy was to use our customer base to acquire more customers. And the logo at the bottom was part of it, but part of it was just creating raving fans. Mm -hmm. It turned out that that um, marketing coach touch um, also created a sense of connectedness I would meet customers two years later and they would be able to tell me who their coach was. That's awesome. And I'll, I'll tell you a one funny story. So I'm at a party with my husband who is a software engineer and someone comes up and they're like, Oh, constant contact. Love you guys. Blah, blah, blah. You know, Gerard helped me get started. And he was so excited. And my husband with a, you know, an engineer's perspective was like, you do know Gerard is in sales. <laughs> and the guy who was talking to me said, oh, no, not my Gerard. Well, like, well so it's... And that's exactly the experience we were trying to create. But, of course, Gerard was measured on how many of his trials he got to close. And um, it's just... But if you... If we created the experience right. It, it, you, know, you know how you... We know when we're talking to a salesperson, and it's a turnoff. So part of our magic was... People felt connected to the brand and they told their friends. So at our peak viral moment, for every customer we paid to acquire, we had 1.9 word of mouth referrals. Wow, that is awesome. Incredible machine. Yeah, and, and, and like you said, like SMBs or you know, most people in general don't like to be sold. But if you're coached, wow, that's a completely different experience and sign me up, I believe, and I wanna be a, a long-term user, so. Yeah. Yeah, it was a great, it was a really great experience and it really focused me on um, customer success and raving fans and the power of promoters, right? The whole kind of movement towards net promoter score. It's not a perfect metric, but it gets at um, a perfect level of understanding that if you make, if you deliver incredible value to your customers and they love you, they'll tell other people about you. 
So you started like seeing the successful business grow, yet there's always challenges in front of you. And I, I read somewhere, is it true that you actually wrote two shutdown plans? You know, because you were always like, it seemed like you were always raising capital, trying to you know, fund the next growth of the business. But, you know, there was always, you know, these challenges that were still in front of you. Well, we really had two challenges. One is that, so again, early customers was about $30 a month, a hundred customers. Yay. Doesn't even pay one employee. Mm -hmm. A thousand customers. Right now we're at $30,000 a month. That's three employees. Like it took a long time to get to the kind of scale where we could be cash flow positive and support the team. So long, slow, SaaS ramp of death. Um, combined with the fact that we were financing the, custom, the company during very dark internet days. So our, our timing on market financing was horrible. We raised money and we, well, was, we had some good luck and some bad luck. We closed our first round in May of 2000, just before the bust. Oh, wow. Okay. That yeah. was the good luck. <laughs> But then we needed more money in 2001, 2002. That was just not a good time to be raising money. Um, and so those were the periods where we faced uh, tremendous challenges. And we were getting early traction, but we hadn't hit the, um, the hockey stick yet. So we needed people to believe, and we were still facing all of the questions about small business SaaS and could you make money at $30 a month and kind of, so we just hit two different financing points. Um, the worst was really 2002 um, where it just, I mean, we did a crushing down round. Crushing down round. Um, and, you know, it was a lesson in learn to fight another day because everybody got squashed but everybody who stayed also got refreshed. Mm -hmm. And over time, we turned that into a company that was worth a billion dollars. Mm -hmm. So it was a difficult time, but if we, you know, what we, at least I did, and some of the key members of the executive team still believed, and we got, and we got through it. Um, and I often say to younger CEOs who are in the midst of financing, you know, Hopefully you'll never hit a dark time, but when you hit a dark time, what matters is the people who are around the table with you and whether they will back you. Mm -hmm. And of the VCs we had at the table in the early, you know, in that 2000 round, some were, some were right behind us and some weren't. And that made all the difference in the world. We wouldn't have survived without the ones who stuck with us and pushed for our success and swallowed the down round and told me it was the necessary thing to do and just to keep going and get over it. And so um, I have nothing but thanks to some of the early team who really, you know, told me to just stick with it. Well, you did. And obviously it became this amazing success story where you, you took the company public. Uh, so, so what was that experience like of, uh, you know, actually being, you know, having that IPO moment? Do you remember Alice in Wonderland? <laughs> <laughs> Um, it really was surreal in a bunch of a different, a bunch of very different ways. I mean, first of all, it's a totally different world with a new language 
a new set of rules, a new, it was like, and, and I love learning curves. So that was kind of fun for me, right? Oh, let's learn what these guys care about and how they work and what does this mean and terminology and all of that. Um, it was obviously for our team opportunity to unlock wealth creation um, and to get um, excited about a next phase of growth. Um, so it was life-changing for hundreds of constant contact employees. And for that, I feel so proud, whether it was financing a home or sending their kids to college or literally uh, cha changing their lives. Um, and it got us a whole new level of visibility. And um, I would say, you know, I ran a public company for eight years and the first five were fun. <laughs> I always think about that, like, cause it's now you're quarter by quarter by quarter. And I would just think it must be tough to do those, you know, reports with the analysts. And, um, you know, like you said, for five years, that's a long time. And then the other three years, it must just, I mean, it just seems like it's exhausting that the quarterly earnings report. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, when we went public, we were in the midst of our hyper growth phase. So, you know, we were beating our own forecasts and beating and raising and, you know, those, those calls aren't that hard because you're sort of telling them about the good things going on in the business. But then the business started to change. We added complexity by adding multiple products. The market got more crowded. All sorts of things started to make it. Uh, and, and we started to drop out of hyper growth, um, first into normal growth and then uh, into growth that Wall Street, you know, didn't appreciate. Dropped to twenty percent annual revenue growth, um, <laughs> which at the scale of the number of revenue, that twenty percent is a very healthy growth rate. I mean, you're at you know you're at two hundred and fifty, three hundred million, and you're growing, you're growing the you're growing sixty million, right? Most startups would be thrilled to have sixty million in revenue, but I'm only adding sixty million in revenue. But that is the game, right? And you're at, that's the game you've agreed to play, right? And it did get quite a bit harder. Um, you know, I think um, as hard as you try to make the making the number not influence your daily decision making, it slips in because the difference between an easy call and a hard call is just a little more of this. And so maybe we should run an extra marketing promotion because, 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 and then it turns out the customers that come in through the promo aren't as engaged and successful. So now we got to do an extra program for them. And suddenly you're clogging the organization with choices you wouldn't have made if you weren't public. So there's no question that that happened over time. And um, of course, from hindsight, there's some things I would have done differently and kind of choices I would have made, but it was a good eight year run. I think for most public company CEOs don't make it eight years. So it was above average. Um, and then we got to the point where those growth challenges were hard enough that we started to look for a partner for growth. And, um, you know, a couple of the folks we were looking at, potential strategic partners, two at once said, we don't just want a partner, we want to own you. Mm -hmm. and, and a process was born in, um, you know, in the end, uh, an M&A transaction seemed, you know, seemed like the right thing to do for the company. 
Right. So this is a 2016 Endurance International Group acquired Constant Contact for 1.1 billion, around that number? Billion, yep. Yeah, so a tremendous, tremendous. I mean, you took it from zero to a tremendous acquisition. So a billion uh, dollar exit. Yeah, that's amazing. Also, not a lot of CEOs who can say that. Exactly. Now, so then the number of female CEOs who can say that is incredibly small. Exactly. Which, uh, yes, we need more of those. We do. Which might well, be a nice segue to Pepperlane. Well, I was just going to say this is a perfect segue to Pepperlane because that's what you're doing with Pepperlane. So I. Um, uh, you know, so I was familiar with Pepper Lane and, you know, Sharon and Jess and the team that's starting this. Uh, and then I saw that, you know, you recently, you know, joined as, uh, you know, co-founder and chief product officer, right? So most people would assume, well, Gail's going to go start another company or be CEO of another publicly traded company or something like that. So when that press release hit the wires, I'm sure a lot of people are like, wow, this is really interesting. What, what is Gail up to next? So, so what are you up to now? So let me start with just why Pepper Lane, and then I'll get to the, I'll get Yeah, to perfect. So I don't, I don't think I anticipated I would take another operating role. You know, I left Constant Contact and I was doing philanthropic work with Entrepreneurship for All, and I did some boards and I did some advisory work. And I was pretty content creating a portfolio of, of things where I felt like I was adding value and my brain was busy. And then I met Sharon and the team at Pepperly. And I just, what we are doing, so let me describe what we're doing briefly. I just think it is a mission that the, uh, the world has needed for a long time. So we are helping moms, mostly moms who've chosen to leave the workforce for a period to focus on, on child raising. We are helping those moms create businesses out of their homes that match their, that on their own terms, that match the hours they want to work, but let them use the skills they have. So we're creating a new type of entrepreneurship. We're saying, hey, you want to work 10 or 20 hours a week? Perfect. That is perfect. We will help you create that business. We'll give you a blueprint for it. We'll show you how to market it. I know something about small business marketing. We'll give you a marketplace to put that business in and we'll let you define success on your own terms. So it is a SaaS enabled marketplace where we are um, meeting these moms, mostly in their communities through events. I can talk about that and a business success model. So we're really committed to these businesses being successful. You have customers, you have revenue, you're making profits, like this is your model. If you think about what those moms today have for choices, it's either try to get back into the traditional workforce, full-time or some form of part-time, or do a multi-level marketing business where the vast majority of women who start there never get successful. They'll have a run, they'll run through their family and friends, and then they'll kind of fade away. And then their neighbors start to avoid them in the grocery store. <laughs> We're going to help them build businesses they're extremely proud of, where their neighbors come up to them and say, oh, how's that going? And I think I know someone who might need your service, right? We're going to help them build businesses they're extraordinarily proud of. There are 24 million women in the United States. If we can get just 
10 million of them to work, we are unlocking $150 billion of economic potential. We are changing lives, we are changing economic outcomes, we are allowing moms to say, I wanna run a business and I wanna be home when my kids get home from school. There is nothing wrong with those choices. In fact, we think some, you know, we wanna applaud those choices and still say, you can have a business. I just got so excited about that because I have seen so many women not feel like they have a path that lets them fulfill their professional ambitions and be the parent they want to be. So I got super excited about that mission. I started advising Sharon. I met Jess and Kate and the rest of the team and began to see the business model start to form that I also saw from my constant contact perspective was going to be unbelievably effective. So we believe you know, that we can build a very successful business made up of many, many, many small businesses. And so I was advising them for about a year when Sharon calls me one night, it's a Sunday night, and she's like, it's time. I'm like, time for what, Sharon? <laughs> it's time for you to come help us build this. And I remember like, no, I'm fine, I'm busy, I can't do it. And she's like, really, just think about it. Think about it. I get off the phone, I'm talking to my husband, and I'm like, she's right, I believe. I believe. I believe that what we're doing will work. I believe that what we're doing matters. I believe that we can change lives. I believe. And that's what I felt at the beginning of Constant Contact, that passion for the mission. It's just gotta be the start of anything you're gonna spend your time on. And then it became, well, all right, if I'm gonna join, what am I gonna do? And Sharon said, you should be the CEO. And I'm like, you're the CEO. And she's like, you have more experience, you have more credibility, like, you should be the CEO. And I was like, well, I, I agree with the experience and the credibility, but we're changing the rules for our moms. We can change the rules for ourselves. And let's actually think about this. And as we talked about it over the course of a few weeks, two things became really clear. One, the company already has a CEO who's actually quite an experienced CEO. This is Sharon's third company, right? She, you know, and, and it was her brainchild and her, you know, she is the right evangelist, emotive leader for the company. She's the CEO. And while I am a great coach to her, I don't need to take her job away. Why don't I actually come in and make her a better CEO by sitting beside her doing what I'm great at, which is product. So that's the second thing that became clear is that what lit me up the most was building the product for our moms. I love building product. And if you talk to anyone in Constant Contact, they'll let you know that I was most excited when I had time to spend time on product. You know, and as the company got bigger, I got less and less time on product. Mm -hmm. And so it ended up just, wow, we can break the rules. But it's interesting, we went out and talked to a bunch of VCs who said, Love what you're doing. Think it's going to work. Flip roles and we'll fund you. You're kidding. Unbelievable. They often did that in a private call to me after the meeting. 
Mm, okay. Which didn't feel, by the way, right or authentic. Right. Yeah, I'm going to take your money now. Yes. <laughs> Actually, and a, and a few of them are old friends, and they were being very honest and very kind and thoughtful about it. So it wasn't as bad as I'm making it sound, but sure. it wasn't what we wanted to do. Right. And we felt like if we are going to help women build businesses on their own terms, we should build our business on our own terms. And so, um, and so here I am, chief product officer, co-founder, and I would say still very much at Sharon's side on business model because I've seen these business models unfold. And, you know, I'm not exactly going to um, not comment if I think there's something uh, else going on in the business that I think should be done differently. So we're just partners. Well, you are addressing a market that is enormous. You already kind of outlined uh, the, the size of the market. And I, like, I feel very passionate about what you're doing because I'm living it. Um, so, you know, my, I have two daughters, they're 13 and 15. And my wife, you know, when we had our first daughter, I think she worked, you know, one more year. And then once we had our second, she's like, you know, I think I just want to stay at home. And she did. And now she's at a stage where, you know, the kids are off at school. They're with their friends. You know, she's bringing them around to sports. So am I. But, um, you know, the time commitment isn't as aggressive as it was. So she wants to be fulfilled and do something else. And she is uh, incredibly uh, brilliant and has skills. And it's not just her. It's, it's all the moms in, my, in the neighborhood I live in. Like, so and they're all incredibly smart, talented, highly professional. But to your point, what do I do now? Because I've been out of the game for a while. Yeah, I don't want to be, she was a recruiter, the best recruiter I ever knew. And she's like, I don't want, I don't want to do that now. Cause you know, she could do that from home, I guess, but she's like, I don't want to do that. She wants to leverage her other creative skills. Um, so it's, it is a, a void where, you know, she wouldn't do the, like you said, the pyramid type of uh, opportunities. Those are not uh, a good match. So, uh, you know, so Pepper Lane needs to exist. Yeah. Thank you. We think so too. And tell your wife to come to a boost. Yeah, I, I will. So, so what is a boost? So a boost is a meetup with 10 other moms who are at different stages. Some have successfully launched their businesses. Some might be where your wife is. I think I want to do this, but I don't quite know what I want. It is led by a community leader and it's a very structured process. So, um, you come with one challenge. Hers might be, I'm thinking about starting a business. I have two ideas. Which one do you like better? Mm -hmm. You start with your elevator pitch around the table. So you practice telling your story. You bring your challenge and you get feedback from the rest of the group. And you leave with one simple act you're going to do to build your business. And you leave with 10 new friends who are going to help you build your business. Because it turns out when folks have been out of the workplace for a little while, one of the things they lack a little bit is confidence. And there is nothing like a supportive group of people saying, you've got this. So the last boost I was at, there was a woman there who'd been working on launching her business. And she gave us the pitch and she said, you know, her, her, her question to the group was, do I need to wait until I do these three things before I actually launch the business? And the whole group was like, you're ready. Like, 
go, 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 like launch, right? And, you know, it's like we, you can always be more ready. But there's a point, and this is like true in software products as well, where you just got to release mm -hmm. and let the world give you feedback. She was, she was actually beyond that point. And she just needed the team to say, we're with you. Go for it. So a boost is a small community meetup where you work on your business with 10 other super supportive moms. Well, it reminds me of like, I, I heard you um, on a, another podcast or one of the talks that you gave that uh, you had a peer group as a CEO, you know, you were a new CEO and, you know, figuring out this world of, uh, you know, building a, a SaaS company. And so you had other CEOs that were like a peer mentor group that helped you through, you know, challenges yeah. along the way. Yeah. So this is like a moment in time peer group, right? Come together, you get some feedback, um, you can, and uh, you move on. So it's really good. It is, it's a peer mentoring group. What's the business model for Pepper Lane? Like, like how does someone join? Is there like a fee? Like, how does that all work? Yep. So we are, um, for, the, for the techies on the listening, we are a SaaS-enabled marketplace. So our moms will pay us an annual SaaS fee, uh, $279 a, a year is where we're at right now. We'll probably play with that price point um, to get all of our tools, all of our coaching and we call them pathways to success. So our our step-by-step um, -step, uh, methodology for building your business and um, a discount to attend the boosts. We do charge for people to come to the boosts. It's a nominal fee, but it just turns out people show up when they pay. Running events on my own, like you, you got to have that buy-in. If you don't, the attrition rate's ridiculous. So when you're, if you're interested in Pepper Lane, you can start entirely for free. You can pay to come to a boost. You can start your online profile through our tools. But when you're ready to launch, you need to become a paid member and, um, and pay that annual fee. For that annual fee, you get um, a, a profile in our marketplace, which can also serve as your website. If, you have, if, you, if, this is, if you're really new to business, it may be all you ever need. We have many members who only use their Pepperlane profile as their website. Um, we are building, we have some, but we're building more marketing tools lead capture tools, and then customer management and customer uh, billing tools. So it'll be a whole tool set to run your business, all for $279 a year. Okay. Wow. All right. That's incredible value. Yeah. And our customers get leads, right? So, you know, what we're trying to make sure we do is you launch on Pepperlane and you follow our marketing plan, you're going to get customers. Mm -hmm. Um and we'll help you understand how to price so you make money on your services or products. Most, most of our moms are service businesses. Um, and so pricing is always a topic at a boost, right? There's always someone who brings a pricing challenge um, because you, you, know, you definitely want to make sure services that you're charging enough that you're actually uh, making money, that it's a profitable business. Um, you know, our moms don't need hundreds of customers. They usually need a handful to a dozen. Mm -hmm. And so we show them how to use kind of their network and our marketplace to get, you know, to get that customer traction and get going. And what's the current scale of the business? Like where are you at as far as either members and employees or whatever? So we have 1,500 moms who've launched their businesses. Wow. That, that's awesome. probably the metric we're most proud of and the one we'll, we'll follow the most. Um, we just launched paid membership um, in Q4. So we're a little, 
if we're right around, we're over 100, but below 200 on paid members. So that's, mm -hmm. that's pretty new to our business model, but uh, stage appropriate. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think we're at nine employees. Okay. And we just raised 4 million. So we're planning to definitely be adding to employees. So tech, uh, we're definitely looking to build our software team. So if you're out there and you're listening and you want to come build a great product for moms, uh, we would love to, uh, we'd love to have you. That was that okay for me to do a pitch? A thousand percent. That's okay. a big part, big part of what we do is help connect amazing talents to amazing companies. So I am all for all for that. <laughs> now, um, you know, we talked about raising capital um, and, you know, how are you able to, you know, in the earlier days of constant contact, when you talked about those kind of tougher times, how are you able to juggle the, um, you know, the responsibility of raising capital to keep the business funded yet still growing and operating a business at the same time? And then a second question that I want to layer into that is like, why is it also important to have full buy-in from the partnership, not just the partner you're dealing with in terms of the VC firm, but the whole, the collective unit of partners? You know, my answer to the first question is great co-founders. <laughs> you know, it is very true when you are raising money and Sharon just went through this and I certainly went through it at Constant Contact. It's kind of all consuming and you are out of the business. You get to, you know, dip into it. Um, and, but you really need uh, other people kind of holding the ship together while you're, while you're off. And good co-founders are uh, an excellent way to do that. We have an extraordinary founding team here at Pepperlane uh, with Sharon, Jess, Kate, and I, um, I'm so grateful they welcomed me in. So I'm a, I'm a late to the table co-founder, but happy, really happy to, uh, to be joining them. So Jess and Kate just kept the whole thing going with, duct tape and bailing wire and, and let, let Sharon be out on the road and then me join Sharon on the road fundraising. So that's, I think, the number one way to do that. Um, it is really, you know, it is wonderful when you get a choice of which VC to work with. It didn't really happen that much for me at Constant Contact. It was a better experience here at Pepper Lane. Um, when you get a choice, if you can get someone who truly is, you know, is a partner, but more importantly, brings their whole firm to bear for you, um, it really is so important. Why is it important? Um, it's important, obviously, for the resources they bring, whether that's their Rolodex or their recruiting or their tools, but it's really, really important when things don't go right. Hopefully, we never need that at Pepper Lane. Um, knock on wood, knock on wood. Knock on, yeah, knock on <laughs> But at Constant Contact, we definitely needed that. And I would say the difference between the VCs that were really stuck with us and the ones where we had challenges had to do with how well I, and I will take complete responsibility, had kept their full partnership in the loop. Because I was a first-time CEO and I hadn't learned that lesson yet. So there is one firm where the New York office had invested in us, but um, most of the leadership and decision-making was on the West Coast. And I had never met any of those folks. 
They didn't understand the business. They weren't bought into the business. And in the dark days of, oh, you know, 2001, 2002, where VC firms had to really, we had inside rounds were the only thing on the table and VC firms had to back us. I was meeting people for the first time and they were choosing between backing a stranger and backing the companies they already knew and loved. Mm-hmm. And that was a mistake. That was my mistake. Not their mistake, my mistake. So I would never do that again. <laughs> uh, you, you know, once you take somebody's money, you need to know the whole team. You need to be visible to the whole team. You need to keep them in the loop. Um, because while you hope nothing goes wrong, if it does, you want the whole team to, be, to know you and be bought into your mission. Now you you're on the 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 board of directors that you know you mentioned Shopify, Mindbody, Lola Travel, and others organizations and companies. So, how does someone get the role as a board member? Like, um, you know, is it like do you have to be the successful CEO that finally somehow taps you on the shoulder saying, "Hey, will you join our board?" Like, how does someone get into that level of position to you know be on a board? Well, I would say historically it was you know, a, you have to be the CEO or be the VC to get the board seat. Um, I think in this um, world of board diversity, a new uh, window is opened up to bringing functional experts who maybe haven't seen the CEO job, but have been the head of digital, the head of whatever, that is a skill that your company's gonna need. People are driving deeper into the talent pool, particularly to bring women onto boards. And I think that's a good thing. Um, It's obviously much easier when you've been a successful CEO to get a board role. Um, But if there are folks out there who want um, to be on boards, the first thing I'd say is get board experience wherever you can. And that usually starts with nonprofits right? Because nonprofits are always looking for help. So start with nonprofits, then start with startups, maybe pre-funded startups, where again, they want your Rolodex, they maybe want a little angel money, and they're willing to have you be a board member. So go get, like, you're not going to start at public company board. You have to have had board experience and by the way, you need that board experience, not just to get the job, but to add the right value. Mm-hmm. The board seat is an incredibly different seat than the operator seat. Like the way you add value is different. And so get some experience and you can get, there are ways to get experience that kind of build you up to the the board you may have your eyes on, may not be the first board you get. Take smaller boards, do some hard work, do some heavy lifting and work your way up. Got it. Okay. Well, you're uh, you know busy on multiple levels, but like outside of, 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 of the work, what, what do you like to do for fun? Well, it's summertime. So uh, I'm a hiker, I'm a kayaker, and I'm a tennis player. Oh, that's fun. So you like to be outdoors and having fun outside. I do. Nature connects me. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, it is. Uh, like I'm, um, I'm more of a summer person as well. Like the the winter, like I don't, I can ski. I just don't do it a lot. And um, same thing. I don't know. Like I'm not like. I got into snowshoeing this year. Oh yeah. Which was basically it's like hiking only with big things on your feet. And it seems like very challenging. Like the, the endurance, right? To to snowshoe. Totally like, depends on where you know. 
where you go, how fast you go, you know, if you're on groomed trails, it's, it's really not very hard. If you try to go through deep powder, it's, it's some work. Got it. Okay. Yeah. That's a good workout. <laughs> so, you know, take it at your own pace. That's right. Well, Gail, thanks so much for taking the time to share, uh, you know, your background and all those fun little tidbits that we learned about you today. Uh, the great story of constant contact. That's a story that I just love hearing over and over again. And then I'm definitely rooting for Pepper Lane to be an even bigger success story because it's something that our, you know, our, everyone needs. Great. Thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed it. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.